Well, good morning, family. What a delight to be here this morning. It's already been a great time together. Let's dig into the Word. I invite you to take out your Bibles open to the book of 1 Samuel and chapter 4 as we continue our study of the life of one of the most remarkable men of the Bible, Samuel, the last of the judges of Israel and the first of the great prophets of Israel. Let's have a word of prayer as we come to the Word. Father, we're so grateful that we have Your Word. We have access to it in our language. We have, most of us have many different translations at home in English translations that help us understand. And we're so blessed. There's still a few folks in this world who don't have it in their own language. We pray, Lord, that that would, that would come about soon. But Father, may we be those who are not just uh, those who hear the word, but those who do it, who put it into practice. So to that end, we commit ourselves as we come to your word. Lord, we, we ask that you would teach us through your word this morning. Draw us near to you. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 4 and verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. Now just to help us a little bit, because this may be new names or places to you, and let's, let's just get a little background. The Philistines lived in the, the land of Canaan. Here's the land of Canaan, or Palestine, as we may know it. The Mediterranean Sea on your left and the Sea of Galilee on top there, the, the uh, Dead Sea down at the bottom and the Jordan River going between them. And Jerusalem was not the capital at this time. It wasn't really anything of note in terms of Scripture at this point, but I put it there for your reference. The, the town above that on the map there that's marked is Shiloh, which was kind of the de facto capital of Israel in this time. The end of the time of the judges and as we prepare in a, a couple of decades, about 40 years from now, to the time of the kings, as Samuel has come onto the scene. But the Philistines lived in the southwestern part of Canaan, uh, right there uh, on the coastal areas. And um, they were an aggressive and a warlike people who migrated to Canaan uh, back quite a while before this, 800 years or so before this, around 2000 B.C., and they probably came from the island of Crete. Uh, about 800 years later, just a little while before Samuel, before Samuel's time, there was another migration of, of Philistines into the land of Canaan um, around 1200 B.C., when they came this time, they settled primarily in five major cities or five cities there in that coastal area. Each of those cities had its own king. And you may often hear, if you read through the scripture, of the five kings of the Philistines or the five cities of the Philistines. They brought with them, when they came, they brought with them advanced weaponry, the high-tech weaponry of their time. Things that they didn't have in Canaan. They also brought with them the ability to work iron, which no other peoples in the land of Canaan had. And using that military might of the Philistines, they 
oppressed and they harassed and they invaded and attacked the Israelites uh, over a period almost of 200 years. They did it quite frequently. The pulpit commentary says of these days in Israel, as I quote, said, never did time seem more hopeless than when Samuel arose. The Philistines, strengthened not merely by a constant influx of immigrants, but also by the importation of arms from Greece, were the fast reducing Israel to a condition of a subject race. In other words, they almost enslaved the people of Israel. Uh, They oppressed them so severely at times. So as our story opens here in verse 1, the Philistines are on the move again. They are coming out to attack the Israelites again. And so the Israelites go out to battle against the Philistines. Probably in a very strategic move, they march out west of Shiloh, about 20 miles, probably in an effort to keep the battle away from their capital. That's a smart thing to do. And they set up at what will later come to be known as Ebenezer. And they call it that now, but it actually doesn't get named that till we'll see in a few chapters from now. And then the Philistines, they lined up, they camped about two miles away in a place called Aphek, just to the north and west of there. Back to the story. Verse 2. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So the war starts, and a battle is lost. It was a bad day for the people of Israel. Badly beaten, 4,000 soldiers lay dead at the end of the day. So verse 3. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? After this terrible defeat, it was time for a powwow, time for a get-together, time for a strategy session among the leaders, the elders of Israel. And they start off with the right question. They say, they ask, why has the Lord defeated us? After all, they want to know, why are we losing? After all, we are God's people. We bear His name. We are fighting for a just cause here. We're fighting against the oppressors who are going to attack us, who are attacking us in the land that God has given to us. And as God's people... God is supposed to be on our side. And so we should be winning. Therefore, if we're not winning, we're defeated because God has let us be defeated. He has defeated us. So they say, why is this happening? That's the right question to ask. But unfortunately, they don't consult the right source for their answer. What they do, it just says here, is they have a meeting. And so who do they talk to? Each other. They talk to one another as leaders. If you recall last week, back in chapter 3, we saw that in the days leading up to this, the Word of God was rare, it said. 
There were few who were actually teaching God's law. They had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law of Moses. They had that. But by and large, the people were ignorant of it. No one was really teaching God's word, or very few were. But even more importantly, God was not speaking to the people through the prophets. There was, as it were, a famine in the land for God's word. We saw last week at the end of chapter 3 that God broke the silence and God started speaking through this young man in, who was serving there in the tabernacle, Samuel. And in a very short time, we saw at the end of chapter 3 last week, all of Israel had come to recognize that Samuel was a prophet of God, that God was speaking through Samuel that God let not one word that came out of Samuel's mouth that said, fall to the ground. And so what is remarkable here is they go out into battle, they are beaten severely, and the leaders say, this is God. He is defeating us. And they want to know what's going on, but they never bother to pray Or seek out the prophet of God to find out if God's behind this, why does God say we're being beaten? Don't you find that remarkable? And I wonder why is that? And bottom line, the only answer is there is no desire. They have no desire to actually hear what God says. They really don't want to know what God's opinion is. Why is that? By the way, it tells us that there, the problem, the real problem leading up to this about a famine in the land for God's Word, part of it was due to a shortage of preachers and that God wasn't speaking, but the real reason ultimately is that people didn't want to hear from God. That's why God stopped speaking and the teachers stopped teaching. People didn't want to hear what God said. May I say that's still a problem today? There are people even who name themselves by the name of God who have no interest in hearing what God's Word says. There are many who live in famine for the Word of God, not because God's Word is inaccessible, not because there is no one teaching God's Word, but because they don't want to hear. And sometimes those people sit in the pews of a church like this and they hear the Word of God is being taught And there's Bibles all around them in the pews in front of them and everywhere, but they tune God out. I trust that's no one here in the room this morning. By the way, had they bothered to ask, why is God defeating us? They would discover that God had already answered their question. God had answered their question centuries before in the law that God had given to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promised to the people of Israel, He said this, If you will listen to me, and if you will follow me, if you will do what I say, then I will be with you. I will be for you, and I will defeat your enemies. Your enemies will come at you one way, and they will run away from you in seven directions. But, he says, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, God says, but if you will not 
Obey the voice of the Lord your God. Or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today. Then these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Skip down a few more verses to verse 25. And he says, the Lord will cause you to be, here it is, to be defeated by your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you will be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. We've noted, as we've been starting here in the life of Samuel, that looking at this time and back in the whole period of the judges, the uh, almost 400 years leading up to this time, that the people of Israel were doing lip service to God. They were going through the motions of religiosity, all the while ignoring what God says, all the while um, following other gods, the gods of the other Canaanites, and all the while living immoral and ungodly lives. And so exactly what God said would happen to them if they lived this way is what happened to them in this battle. God had already answered the question. But they're not asking, really asking God because I think they realize they don't really want to know what God says because it's something they don't want to hear. You see, they have a problem like many of us at times, they do want God's help, but they don't want God's word because they don't want to live God's way. Many of us as Christians have gone through periods in our life where we're like that. We say, I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but I really don't want to live God's way. So we really don't want to hear what God says. But whenever we get into trouble, we want God's help. It's exactly where the Israelites were at this time. I hope none of you are there this morning. If you are, learn from the Israelites. Not a good place to be. Let's keep going in the text here. Verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned of the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So these religious leaders, the, the elders of Israel, after realizing that the Lord is not fighting for them, they realize it's time we need a new strategy. And the new strategy they settle upon is religion. Obviously, we are not religious enough. 
we need to get God on our side here. So, they think, what's the solution here? Got it. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant of God and let's take it to the battle with us. See, the Ark of the Covenant, God Himself had given the instructions for building the Ark. And God said about the purpose of the Ark, He said this in Exodus 25, He said, There, at the Ark of the Covenant, I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. God said, here's where I'm going to meet with you, people of Israel, and I will tell you what it is you need to know and need to do. The ark was the symbol then of God's presence with the people. It was, it was central to their worship. The ark was a big box, basically, about four feet long. And it was covered with gold. And it contained, among the things in it, were the tablets of stone that had the commandments of God. The Ten Commandments were in there. It was a symbol of God's covenant with Israel. There were two angels, two cherubim on top, which wings went together to form, as it were, a seat there, which was to picture, be a representation of God's throne in heaven. And the ark, according to God's instructions, was to reside in the holy of holies, the holiest place in the, in the tabernacle, there behind that great veil, that great curtain, which could only be entered once a year and only by the high priest that one time per year. On the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and put it there on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And so apparently the thinking is by these leaders, we need God on our side. And so what, can, what religious thing can we do to get God on our side? Well, we're going to take the very representation of God's presence with us the box, the ark, and we're going to take it to the battle. Because if that's where God meets with us, then we're going to take the box and God is going to have to go with it. And so, we'll have God with us at the battle and He will have to fight for us to defend Himself. We can't lose, so they think. It's a bad, wrong-headed idea. And that's not bad enough. Of course, the people who show up with the ark are those corrupt, vile, disgusting priests that we saw over the last couple of weeks. Hophni and Phineas, whom God has already pronounced judgment on, they're the guys who show up with the ark to oversee all of the religious festivities. They're in great shape, you can see already. Unfortunately, these Israelites have bought into three lies Three deceptions, really from the pit of hell, that people today still very often believe. Three lies. One of them is this, that the God of universe, the God of the universe could be bound by a box or by some other article or some other symbol so that there is power in this box, power in this object, power in this relic, power in this symbol. 
Because God is connected to it. And it now takes on, as it were, power of its own. People believe that. Believing in some religious relic like that is wrong. Unfortunately, these people were trusting in the ark of God rather than trusting in the God of the ark. Don't ever make that mistake, brothers and sisters. It's like people trust in church, maybe. Like church has some magical thing rather than the God that we meet with and worship at church. Second lie they believed is that somehow we can impress God with our religion. We can impress God with our religiosity and He will ignore our heart. If we just go through enough motions, God's going to go, wow, that's impressive. It's, it's unfortunately what it is, is taking the concept that, that our hearts don't matter. Later in this book, the prophet Samuel will speak to King Saul, who has disobeyed God and thinks that, hey, it's okay, I'm going to make up for it by being religious. King Samuel says to King Saul, he says this over in chapter 15. He says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. To obey is better than sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, God is pleased with obedient hearts, not with religion. Thirdly, the third lie they believed is that we can somehow manipulate God to do what we want. If we, you know, if we do the right things, you know, we can kind of treat God like a vending machine. You just push the right buttons in the right order, and sooner or later what you want comes out. Or treat God like a piñata, you know, hanging there. If you get the right stick and beat it hard enough in the right place, the goodies come out. It is blasphemous to treat God in that way. And yet there are many people, even many believers in Christ, who treat God that way. Who think somehow if we say the right things in the right way, if we pray long enough and hard enough with enough faith and the right words, God has to do what we say. No, He doesn't. It's believing that somehow God should serve us rather than that we should serve Him. It's ungodly thinking. But by the way, it was a great morale booster to the troops of Israel. (laughs) When they brought the ark to the camp, there was a great shout. Everybody was excited. Bad theology, false teaching is often very popular. But it doesn't make it true. The Israelites responded with such a great shout and great celebration that it was heard by the Philistines two miles away. They heard it. They felt it as the earth shook. They go, what is the celebration going on? They send out a recon team. They come back. They say, they brought the ark of the Lord there. They've got a God in their midst. And we saw it said here that they were, they began shaking and quaking in their sandals. You know, this, this is awful. 
we've never faced anything like this before. We're going to go to battle against a God. By the way, did you notice that they were fully aware of what Yahweh God had done for the Israelites about 400 years before when he brought them out of Egypt? That he sent plagues upon the Egyptians. He defeated the Egyptians so that he would set his people free. They knew something about God. By the way, just a little thing for those of you who are just looking for some little theological tidbits. You notice it says God's. It's interesting, it says in there in verse, let me back it up here. It says there in verse 7 that a God has come into their midst, singular. Then it says in verse 8, in most translations, it translates it, who can save us from the power of these mighty gods? And then it says again, these are the gods, plural. I really think if you're going to translate it, you should translate it the same both places. Because it's the same word. It is the word Elohim. Those of you who know, you go back to the book of Genesis. It's the first word by which, first name for God we encounter there. It is plural, and yet we translate it most of the time singular. Because it is the mighty God. And so it doesn't really mean that the Philistines even thought that the Hebrews worshipped many gods. Although in practice, most of the folks of Israel right now were worshipping many gods. But they knew about Yahweh. They knew He was a mighty God. Unfortunately, they learned a lot of bad theology from these people who were supposed to be God's representatives. I hope, brothers and sisters, that people around us who don't know God don't learn bad theology by the way we live. I hope they learn good theology, truth about who God is by the way we live. The Philistines here, they are, they are afraid, but you notice they don't decide, well, this is hopeless, let's just, they get discouraged and quit and go home. That's not what happens. Instead what happens is, after they start thinking about it, they say, wait a minute. Either we're going to become slaves to the Israelites or we better beat this God. Let's be men. Go out there and fight. Fight harder. They become determined to fight harder. After all, in their thinking, the Israelites think God has come into their midst because they brought a box. If their God can be carried around in a box, He must not be much of a God. I think in his case, the Philistines are smarter than the Israelites. That's, by the way, what happens when we disobey God for long enough. We become fools. Well, let's move on to the story. Here we go, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Oh my, it was indeed a bad day, a devastating defeat. Israel here loses the war. There is no coming back to the battlefield after this. We can only imagine what that looks like. 30,000 dead bodies on the ground at the end of this day, at the end of this battle, however long it took. 
The rest just flew, fled for their lives. Truly tragic, but it gets worse than that. Verse 11, And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man from Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel for forty years. Israel had lost the war but they also, Israel loses the ark and their priests, the three active priests, Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. By the end of that day, they all lay dead. The ark is taken captive by the Philistines. Hophni and Phinehas, you recall, we saw two weeks ago back in chapter 2 that God had said they were, as a judgment because of their corruption and their sin, their wickedness, they were going to die on the very same day. God now has brought it about. There's been no change of heart, no repentance in their life. This runner, as he comes from the battlefield, by the way, that was the, the social media of their day. You don't have cell phones. How do you get word from the battlefield back to the, the capital city? It's by a runner. It's by the way where we got our term marathon. was years, centuries later with the Greeks as a runner ran from the city of Marathon to the city of Athens with news about the battle, 25 miles, 26 miles, three, how many yards do you guys know? 485, 500, I don't know, it's a bunch. It's a long way. I can't do it. I can't even make the mere 20 miles it was from the battlefield to Shiloh. But he shows up, he says, he's horrible. We're defeated. 30,000 men dead. Your sons, Hophni, Phineas, dead. But it was the next thing he said that took Eli's breath away. And the ark has been captured. You recall Eli was sitting there at the gate, says, looking down the road, even though his eyes are blind, he can't see. He's there, he's nervously waiting. As a high priest, he was in charge of the, the ark of the covenant. It was in his custody. And I'm sure he knew it was a bad idea. It was a, a foolish plan to send it off to the war. It's been captured. He falls over backwards, being 98 years old, brittle bones, I'm sure, being very overweight. His neck breaks and he dies. In one day, 
They have lost the ark and the priests. I think it's hard to overstate what a great loss this is to Israel, whether the people all care or not, maybe another thing. This is devastating. And I could comment on a number of reasons why, but I think the best commentary is simply summarized in the next scene here in this chapter. There's one last scene. We go probably across the city into Phineas's household, I imagine, where his wife is there and she's pregnant. Let's pick up the story in verse 19. Now, his, that's Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. It threw her into labor. Just the shock of that news. And she gives birth, and the, the giving birth, the delivery goes very badly. Next verse. And about the time of her death, she's dying. The women attending her said, Do not be afraid, for you've born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. She named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark has been captured. Phineas, one of those two wicked priests, his wife is about to give birth. She goes into labor, difficult birth, she's dying. The attendants are trying to comfort her as she's in her last moments of life. They're trying to say, look, you have a son. And that should be wonderful news. Your husband is dead. You are about to die, but you have a legacy. You have a son to carry on the family name. You have a son to grow up and become a priest. You have a son. But this dear lady isn't buying it. She's not comforted. She ignores them. She tunes them out. And she is grieving. But it doesn't say that she's grieving about her own death. She doesn't even appear to be grieving the death of her husband. She is grieving and she names her son Ichabod, which means, literally it translates, no glory. Because, as it's said twice here in the text, because the glory has departed. Because the ark of God has been captured. See, she was right. Israel has not only lost the war, Israel has not only lost the ark and its priests, but Israel has lost the glory. The glory of Israel was gone. The glory of Israel was not its land. The glory of Israel was not their military might. The glory of Israel was not their national status. The glory of Israel was not their wealth. 
The glory of Israel was not even the ark of God. What was the glory of Israel? The glory of Israel was their relationship with God. Their connection with God. What set Israel apart from every other nation on the face of the earth was that God had come to them and God had said, starting with Abraham, I will make a covenant with you and your descendants forever. And God spoke to Isaac and God spoke to Jacob. And we come down to Moses and God established a covenant with the people of Israel. And God said to this fledgling nation, He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. A covenant, a contract, an agreement. We're in this together. I am yours and you are mine. That was the glory of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, there's that word again, was the sign. It was the symbol of this covenant between God and the people. And it was the place, as we noted back in Exodus 25, it was the place where God promised to connect with His people. Where God promised to meet there with them through the priest who would come and bring the the atonement for the sins of the people. And the priest would come there to intercede, to pray for the people. And now in this day, they have lost the place of this connection and the, the human mediators that would come to meet with God there, the priests. They were taken away from Israel. And as far as this Lady is concerned. She realizes the glory is gone. Our glory is our connection with God and it has been lost. God has temporarily taken away the ark and the priesthood. May I say, He's doing it as a wake-up call to get their attention. Because the reality is, Israel had left, gone, had left God a long time before. And God will often give us what we want, even to our own destruction. The people have demonstrated by their actions for so long that they want nothing to do with God, and God has said, okay. And He has allowed the ark to be taken captive, and God has allowed the priesthood, the functioning priests, the three who were functioning at that time, to die. And that's how the story ends. And so now this dying mother says, in effect, she says, what's the purpose in living? I'm going to die, but my son, this is no great news here. The glory is gone, Ichabod. Good luck, son. (laughs) Kind of what she's saying. See, she understood that without God, what what value is there in life? It's the same question that Solomon asks in the book of Ecclesiastes. What good is life under the sun? You take God out, what good is it? Without God, there's no ultimately no meaning, no purpose to life. We are just accidents of nature. Chance, little freak of nature, that's all we are. 
If evolution is right and we are wrong, there's no purpose, no meaning to life at all. Without God, there will never be any ultimate justice. All the wrongs of this world, the bad guys are going to get away with everything. All the evil goes unpunished. There is no justice if there is no God. Without God, if there is no God, there is no hope beyond this life. There is no hope of anything beyond this life. All we have is what is from now till we die, however little bit of time that is, and it gets shorter and shorter the longer we, the older we get. And what little bit of joy and pleasure we can squeeze into this life amidst all the troubles and the struggles and the difficulties, that's all there is, folks, without God. And that led Solomon and Ecclesiastes to go, life under the sun, you take God out of it, life is meaningless, life is empty, life is vanity, it is futile. It's like chasing after wind. That's the depressing note this story ends on. Now, our chapter ends there today, but it's not the end of the story. We're going to pick up here next week. There's a lot more to go in the life of Samuel. But there are two really important lessons here to us this morning. You see, the first is, that we really do need a relationship with God. And a relationship with God, the Bible is very clear, it does not come through religious ritual. We don't get a relationship with God simply by going to church, simply by taking communion or getting baptized or any other religious things that we can do. That doesn't make a relationship with God. A relationship with God also does not come, we, we see here, through religious relics. It doesn't come by, by wearing a cross around your neck or by, by uh, tacking crosses up on your wall. It doesn't come by carrying around a Bible everywhere you go or getting a small one you can put in your pocket. That doesn't create a relationship with God. You know, we can tattoo Bible verses all over our body, but that doesn't create a relationship with God. It's not obtained by relics or superstition. And it can't be earned by things we do. We can't earn a relationship with God by simply trying to be good enough. Our best righteousness, the Bible says, is like dirty rags. So what hope is there? Well, all of the Old Testament law All of the Old Testament, we don't have time to go into it, including the Ark of the Covenant, the sacrifices, the priesthood. Everything that's there is all looking forward. They're foreshadows of what God is going to do. And they are steps forward as God is moving forward in His plan to bring the ultimate answer to the problem. How do we get a relationship with God? How does sinful man have a relationship with a holy God? And the answer is found in Jesus. Cutting to the short here. It's only through trusting in Jesus. It's not found in religion. Only through Jesus. It's right here. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish 
but have everlasting life. The one who receives Jesus, who trusts in Him, it says earlier in John, in chapter 1, it says, those He gives the right to become children of God. We, be, we have a relationship with God. We are His children. He is our Father. That's how you have a relationship with Jesus. It's trust Him. The first application, the first lesson from this this morning is simply, if you're here this morning, and you've never come into a relationship with God, God isn't, he invites you. He pleads with you. Trust in Jesus. God wants a relationship with you. The second lesson for this, or through this story, is for all of us who have already trusted Jesus as our Savior. What a foolish and ridiculous thing it is to have a relationship with God and turn away from following Him and go and follow after other gods. Materialism. You know, any things or people or anything else that we put ahead of God, that we value more highly than God, that we desire more than God, and God takes second place or third place or fifth place or tenth place. That's what the Israelites were doing. While they still went through the motions, we still show up at church. We really don't care what God has to say. We tune Him out. What a horrible thing it is when we do that. What a foolish thing. And part of the point of this lesson this morning is to call to those of us who who know God, who have a relationship with Him, to, to ask, am I listening to Him? Am I following Him? I've been going my own way. Because ultimately, to go our own way leads to disaster. It leads to ruin. Let's pray. Father, big lessons here. What a great story. If it were just a story, but it's history. And you intend to us to, for us to learn from this history. To learn about you and our relationship with you. To learn about your great love and your great patience with us. And yet, you also say in your word, be careful. Because a man will reap what he sows. So Father, I pray that no one in this room, no one listening at home, watching at home this morning, that no one will hear this and first of all, neglect the reality that you love sinful man so much. You desire a relationship with us. That you became man. God became man. You sent Jesus. He came and died for our sins. You offer forgiveness from sin. Relationship with you. Life eternal. Simply if we will trust Jesus. Receive Him as our Savior. May not one person listening this morning walk away without placing their trust in you in Jesus and then Father may all of us believers may we learn from this may we put you first in our life may we not turn aside and follow other things but follow you as Lord of all that we will love you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and then 
live in the blessings that come from walking with you. Father, this we pray will be true of us here at the Chapel of the Lake. In Jesus' name we pray.